Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the monster of Worcester. But first, your true crime headlines. Two Milwaukee teenagers are facing homicide charges in the rape and murder of E. Lee, who was brutally beaten and left for dead in Washington Park in September of 2020. Lee was found unconscious and undressed below the waist in Washington Park on September 16, 2020, by bystanders. She was still breathing, but unresponsive. She had been sexually assaulted and suffered severe contusions to the face. Lee later died on September 19, due to blunt force trauma to her head. Two teens, 17-year-old Kamari Lewis, and 15-year-old Kevin Spencer now face one count of first-degree intentional homicide and one count of first-degree sexual assault for the crime. A criminal complaint said that video showed five to six people potentially involved in the crime running away from the area. It appeared that Lee had been taken from a blanket to a tree where the sexual assault occurred. She was then dragged to the edge of the pond and left for dead. Video from the Washington Park Library showed 11 people leaving the park, some on bicycles and others on foot. One of them was 17-year-old Lewis, according to prosecutors. One of the bystanders who called 911 after finding Lee's body was later determined to have actually been in the park during the assault. According to the complaint, they were walking with several subjects, including Lewis and Spencer. When confronted, prosecutors said that that witness gave a, quote, detailed statement, indicating that Lewis and Spencer beat Lee and forced her to perform sex acts. The witness said that a video on Lewis's phone showed Lewis and Spencer beating Lee as she lay on the ground. A second bystander who found the body said that he witnessed Lewis, quote, hitting Lee with tree branches and punching her in the face, while Spencer also beat the victim. After the attack, he said, quote, Spencer told Kamare to put her in the water, and Kamare was dragging her to the water. The witness said that he received a video of the incident recorded by Lewis through Facebook Messenger and later deleted it from his phone. On January 12th, nearly four months after the crime, detectives received a call from the mother of that witness. She told them that she, quote, may have a video that they would be interested in seeing on his old iPhone, sent to her son via Facebook Messenger by Lewis, but later deleted. She said the video showed, quote, two boys beating a lady, and you could tell who they were, noting, quote, a lot of other kids standing around. She said they received the video about two days after the incident, and she told her son to, quote, get rid of the video because it doesn't have anything to do with him, adding that he should, quote, stay away from Kamari Lewis. A witness whose DNA was found on a bottle at the scene told investigators that the incident began when he walked into the park with Lewis and Spencer and they, quote, saw this lady on a blanket in the park and walked up to her to see if she had any money and started harassing her. 
He said that Lewis and Spencer attacked her and dragged her away to the area where the sexual assault happened. He said that he, quote, didn't want to be involved and started walking away when he was struck by a juice bottle thrown by one of the defendants. Prosecutors said that Spencer told the witness that he and Lewis beat and raped Lee. According to the complaint, Lewis, quote, tried to downplay his role in the incident, telling investigators that Spencer and others did most of the beating. Lewis even claimed, quote, incredibly, the complaint noted, that Lee, quote, volunteered to have sex with the defendant and others present. But other people came around and the group started beating her, despite the video evidence. The complaint said that Lewis suggested Spencer was, quote, the most aggressive, and that he beat Lee more brutally as more people gathered. DNA from both Lewis and Spencer were found on Lee's denim jacket and on her body. Prosecutors say that Lewis, in all, admitted to beating Lee, sexually assaulting Lee, and leaving Lee for dead near the pond and not calling for help, noting that he thought Lee was dead and, quote, didn't really care about her because she's not someone he knows personally. In Washington, a 37-year-old Redmond area man has been under guard at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, where he is being treated for a self-inflicted injury after King County Sheriff's deputies responded to a domestic violence disturbance Tuesday and found the man's eight-year-old son dead inside their home. The King County Medical Examiner's Office identified the boy Thursday as Mahan Molda and concluded that he died from a cut to his neck. The boy's death has been ruled a homicide. Just before 8 a.m. Tuesday, sheriff's deputies responded to a domestic violence call at a house in the unincorporated English Hill neighborhood east of Redmond. Inside, they found the child dead and his father suffering from a non-life-threatening self-inflicted injury. No other family members were hurt. The boy's homicide is being investigated by detectives assigned to the sheriff's major crimes unit. A Massachusetts man already serving multiple life sentences in a Rhode Island prison for double homicide has been indicted in connection with another killing that occurred nearly a decade ago. 35-year-old Nigel Nichols faces murder and other charges in the October 2011 shooting in Providence that took the life of Stephen Latimer and injured three others, according to a statement from Attorney General Peter Nerona. Nichols was previously convicted in 2015 of the killings of David Thomas and Domingo Ortiz in Providence in December of 2009. He is currently serving four consecutive life sentences, plus a consecutive 30-year sentence for murder and other charges related to that shooting. Prosecutors now say that in the early morning hours of October 2, 2011, Nichols who was in a vehicle, pulled up alongside another moving vehicle and opened fire, killing Latimer and injuring three others in the car. Nichols will be arraigned on the new charges at a later date. 
Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the monster of Worcester. But first, a quick break. Here at Murder Minute, we focus on the facts and skip the chit-chat. But sometimes, there's more to the story. Conflicting reports, rumors, theories, unverifiable witness accounts, and more. Now you can join us live every Saturday as we dissect and discuss every detail during our weekly Murder Minute post-mortem, only on Stereo. Stereo is a free live broadcast social platform that enables people to have real conversations in real time. On Stereo, you can ask me questions about the case, tell me your theories, and even suggest stories for future episodes. Murder Minute is excited to offer you this killer new way to interact with us. Join us Saturdays for a live Murder Minute post-mortem on the Stereo app. Download the free Stereo app and select Murder Minute so that you can connect with us whenever we're live. Go to Stereo.com slash Murder Minute to get started. And stay tuned for more details on how to join us on Stereo at the end of today's episode. Welcome back to Murder Minute. David Anthony McGreevy was born in 1951 in Southport to Thomas and Bella McGreevy, and he was the second of six children. David's father Thomas was a sergeant in the Royal Signals, so the family moved from military base to military base often. According to his mother, Bella, some of their happiest years were spent in Germany. And by all accounts, the McGreevy children had a normal, happy upbringing. And David was a well-behaved and well-adjusted child. David once stole his mother's shopping money so that he could go on a trip to Liverpool while the family were living in Cardiff. But apart from that, his mother, Bella, never noticed any red flags. In 1967, at age 16, David decided to continue his family's military tradition. He left school and joined the Royal Navy, where he hoped to make a career. But it wouldn't last. In the late 60s, David was stationed at Portsmouth Naval Base and joined his first ship, the HMS Eagle where his cocky, arrogant attitude and lack of discipline often got him into trouble with his superiors. He also developed a drinking problem. While stationed in Pembrokeshire, he broke into an officer's room and set fire to a bin of papers. David claimed that he had accidentally dropped a cigarette, but witnesses said that he had been agitated and drunk on duty. He was court-martialed and for his negligence was sentenced to 90 days detention and psychiatric testing. In 1971, David McGreevy began exchanging letters with a woman named Mary and within a week of meeting her, he proposed marriage. David's parents, Bella and Thomas, disapproved of the relationship. But Mary would turn out to be the least of their problems. 
In August of 1971, the 20-year-old was dismissed from the Navy and landed on their doorstep in Worcestershire. David attempted to find employment and briefly worked as a cook and a laborer, but could never seem to hold down a job due to his arrogant attitude and his alcoholism. But being broke didn't stop him from planning a big wedding. Mary would have settled for something less. She would have settled for a registry office ceremony, said criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. But David was quite determined that they were going to have this big church wedding. And I think it all became quite real at this point. This young man who wants to marry her, who's obsessed with having this big wedding. And she actually called it off on New Year's Eve of 1971. By January of 1972, David had lost the job and the girl, was unemployed with no prospects, and was living with his parents. Depressed, David again turned to alcohol. And after months of living rent-free, his parents kicked him out. That's when David McGreevy moved in with his friend Clive Ralph and his pregnant wife, Elsie. Clive and Elsie lived in a small two-bedroom home on Gillam Street and already had two small children. The couple had married in September of 1968 when Elsie, at age 16, became pregnant with their first child, Paul. Their next child, Dawn, followed soon after. In 1971, Clive was five years older than Elsie and worked as a lorry driver for his father. Elsie worked as a barmaid at the Punchbowl Tavern. We lived in a cul-de-sac. There was about ten houses in this cul-de-sac and there was children in every house. And it was one of those places where everybody left their door open for anybody to come in and out. And everybody looked after everybody. Elsie would later recall. David came to live with us because he had an argument with his parents or something. And that's how it all started. To earn his keep, David picked up work at a factory, paid six pounds per week for rent, occasionally cooked Sunday dinner, and babysat the children when Elsie and Clive were working. In September of 1972, Elsie gave birth to the couple's third child, another daughter, Samantha. The arrangement seemed to be working out well. David seemed to love the kids, and according to Elsie, acted like a father to them. Everyone who knew David knew that he loved the children, recalled Thomas McCreevy, David's father. David shared the bedroom with Paul, Elsie recalled. Samantha was only little, so she was still in a little cradle cot. And then Dawn had another bed with us. As the time was going on, we were going to look for a bigger place anyway. But it didn't get to that part. On Friday the 13th of April 1973, Elsie was working her shift at the Punch Bowl, and David was out drinking at Bucks Hill Pub. After several pints of beer, a round of darts, and a small altercation after David 
put his cigarette out in his friend's beer. Clive picked David up from the pub and drove him back home to look after the children while he went to pick up Elsie from work. When Clive Ralph left around 11 p.m., the children were all asleep. When he and Elsie returned home an hour later, they were gone. And so was David McGreevy. At 1.20 a.m., police found them. The three children were impaled on the iron railings of a neighbor's fence. At 3.05 a.m., police found David in nearby Lansdowne Road. What's this all about? he asked as they arrested him. But within hours, he confessed. It all started, he said, when nine-month-old Samantha wouldn't stop crying. I put my hand across her mouth and carried on from there. David said, she would die of a skull fracture. Then he slit the throat of two-year-old Dawn. Four-year-old Paul, he said, he strangled with a wire. All I could hear is kids, kids, fucking kids, he said. After the children were dead, he then mutilated their bodies with a pickaxe and impaled them on the neighbor's fence. It was all too bloody gruesome, David said. It was me, but it was not me. How could I do it? Detective Superintendent Bob Booth said of the crime, quote, No investigating officer has ever had to witness such a scene of indescribable horror. When police asked David McGreevy why he had killed the children, he replied, That's what I have been trying to figure out. If I hadn't been at work, they would still be here, Elsie said. But I couldn't understand how it had happened. David was amazing with the children. I can't recognize the man who did those things to my children. The press dubbed David McGreevy the monster of Worcester. Two months later, on June 28, 1973, the monster pleaded guilty to the murders in a hearing that lasted just eight minutes. And in July of 1973, David McGreevy was sentenced. The judge in the case, Mr. Justice Ashworth, said, quote, There is only one sentence I can pass, and that is life imprisonment. But in this case, so appalling to the Crown, and in the public interest so grave as to risk any repetition, I recommend the sentence should not elapse before 20 years. Elsie never returned to their home. She went to stay at her sister's house, and Clive went back to his parents. We just stopped talking to one another. I couldn't cope with the idea of going on without my children, Elsie said. The couple eventually divorced. He might as well have killed me, said Elsie. I lost my children, my husband, my home, my sanity, everything because of him.
Elsie went on to remarry, but she had no more children. I'd had complications with my third pregnancy, so I couldn't have any more, she said. I wouldn't have done anyway. Nothing could replace what I had, because they were perfect. Behind bars, the monster of Worcester was under constant threat from his fellow inmates, and as a result of numerous attacks and death threats, spent the better part of four decades in protected conditions. In 2006, David was transferred to an open prison and was photographed by the Sun on day release in Liverpool. When I saw the pictures, I was almost sick, said Elsie. I couldn't believe he was on the streets around people, around children. Victim support explained McGreevy was eligible to apply for parole. Then I knew I would never rest until he was dead. Mike Foster, then MP for Worcester, agreed. He believed that David McGreevy should be permanently banned from returning to the area. These were indescribable acts of brutality that still sicken the people of Worcester when they recollect the events, he said. My gut instinct is that this man should spend the rest of his life in prison. His crimes were just as terrible as those of other notorious killers, such as Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, for whom life rightly meant life. After the pictures were published, David McGreevy received more death threats and went back to a closed prison for his own safety. In 2009, David McGreevy applied for an anonymity order during his parole board proceedings. His parole was denied, but the anonymity order was granted, and the decision by the High Court of Justice was criticized in the British press. The Secretary of State for Justice agreed, arguing that setting such a precedent would prevent coverage for dangerous criminals. In 2013, the anonymity order was overturned. The Guardian wrote, quote, The challenge to the gagging order by the media, supported by the Justice Secretary, argued it was legally flawed and wrongly prevented the public from knowing the full facts of the case. The Press Association had previously warned the High Court that allowing anonymity in this case would set a precedent for other high-profile prisoners to seek similar orders. The Justice Secretary welcomed the ruling, saying, quote, This is a clear victory for open justice. The public has every right to know when serious offenders are taking legal action on matters which relate to their imprisonment. In 2016, David McGreevy again applied for parole and again failed. But in December of 2018, 67-year-old David McGreevy was cleared for release. The report said that after 45 years in prison, he had changed considerably. Quote, He has developed self-control, as well as a considerable understanding of the problems that he has had and what caused them. 
The psychologist identified a number of factors which make it less likely that Mr. McGreevy will reoffend in the future. These included his improved self-control and the fact that Mr. McGreevy has learned to remain calm in stressful situations. He has also shown himself to be compliant and cooperative with authority, which suggests that he will comply with license conditions. A network of supportive friends in the community was also identified as a protective factor. The parole board said, quote, We can confirm that a panel of the parole board has directed the release of David McGreevy following an oral hearing. When Elsie received the news, she broke down. How can it be right that the parole board can decide he served his sentence when mine will never, ever end? She asked. I see my children's faces every night when I close my eyes and try to sleep. A board document referred to a victim personal statement by Elsie, quote, setting out the devastating effect that these deaths had on her and still do have. But it made no difference. Parole board decisions, quote, are solely focused on whether a prisoner would represent a significant risk to the public after release, the board said. The panel will have carefully looked at a whole range of evidence, including details of the original evidence and any evidence of behavior change. We do that with great care, they said, and public safety is our number one priority. After 10 years of living in fear of his release and fighting to prevent it, Elsie felt betrayed. What this animal did to my children was every bit as bad as what the Moors murderers did, Elsie told the son. But Ian Brady and Myra Hindley never left prison before they died, so why the hell should he? He put my babies on spikes, for God's sake. He mutilated them, and they died in agony. I wanted him dead, and to suffer, like they had, but was reassured after his trial that his crime was so terrible that he would never walk free again. What mother could feel safe knowing that a bastard like that is out there? Who knows when and where his switch will flick again? He can never be safe on the streets, Elsie said. They may come to regret this, and can't say I didn't warn them. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Stereo at Murder Minute. Join us every Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a Murder Minute postmortem. Hear more about the case, tell us your theories, ask questions, and more. Only on Stereo. Stereo app users can engage with the platform to listen in and join conversations about issues and ideas that interest you, like comedy, pop culture, lifestyle, sports, and of course, true crime. Stereo can be downloaded for free by Apple and Android users. Once you've downloaded the app, create your avatar and profile so that you can send me audio messages in real time every Saturday during our Murder Minute postmortem. 
Here at Murder Minute, we focus on the facts. No theories and no chit-chat. But sometimes there's more to the story. Conflicting reports, rumors, and unverifiable witness accounts. Join us as we discuss them all. Live every Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific for our weekly Murder Minute postmortem only on Stereo. Download Stereo free and get started at www.stereo.com slash murder minute. That's S-T-E-R-E-O dot com slash murder minute.